Well, if you were here last week, you might remember that I told you about the struggles that I had during the period of time between my own conversion and when Kirsty's faith came alive. And by way of introduction to today's passage, I'd like to fill you in on a particular event that happened during that period of time. Remember, those of you here here last week, what my friend Chris had said to me, which I had received as a word from God, which was, if you stand firm in your faith, you will lead your family to Christ. That's what he'd said. And many months later, it hadn't happened. Well, in short, I got fed up waiting for Kirsty to come to faith, and I decided to take matters into my own hands. God had not answered my daily prayer to break into Kirsty's life, and my patience with God had run out. So I thought to myself, I know what I'll do. I'll take Kirsty and the children out to South Africa to that same little church out in the bush where I had that experience, and God will do to her what he did to me. Ha ha. Great plan, I thought. <laughs> the problem is, the problem is, it wasn't an easy thing to accomplish because we had already planned a holiday with some friends in California. So I had to persuade Kirsty and the family to scupper those plans and to change our holiday to South Africa instead. And the only way I could do that was to bribe them with a super-duper, very expensive horseback safari, which was based quite close to the little church in the bush where I'd had my encounter. And, uh, and I said, of course, that we could, just for interest, visit that church uh, on the Sunday. What a clever plan it was. Except there was one big problem with it. It wasn't God's plan. It was my plan. Kirsty, of course, wasn't fooled in the least. She had guessed exactly what I was up to, had surreptitiously messaged our friends in California to say that we wouldn't be coming out to California because Pads was determined to take her to South Africa to a den of Christians. (laughs) Well, you can guess the inevitable outcome. I spent a fortune on this amazing holiday, which was truly amazing. We rode through the bush on horseback with elephant and rhino and hippo and giraffe, and it was incredible. But nothing happened when we went to the church. Nothing happened. Um, there was no, nothing happened in the spiritual department. Um, and this is a perfect example, really, of what we've just heard about from this reading that Martin has just read to us. It's about people making their own clever strategies instead of following God's plan for their lives. And the end result is always disappointment. I think we've all had times in our lives, haven't we, when we tried to force a situation when we shouldn't. Fortunately for me, that particular incident only caused me a deal of disappointment and cost me quite a lot of money and nothing worse. Many years ago, though, I had tried to fix a seriously broken relationship between two brothers, both of them friends of mine, one of whom, Simon, had refused to speak to his brother Shane for 10 years. And I tried to force the situation to manufacture a sort of surprise meeting whereby they would be reconciled to each other, but it backfired. 
And then Simon stopped talking to me for the next three years. We've all tried to control the world around us, often with good motives, sometimes poor motives, but often with completely the wrong approach, wrong timing, wrong attitude, and then we can make things worse. The good news is that our Bible reading this morning helps us because it describes a time in the life of one of the great families of God, Abraham's family, when even they get it completely wrong. They try to force the situation. They lose patience with God, just like I did 20 years ago. They try to make it happen without God's involvement, and they run into a whole host of problems as a result. But there's good news, because this passage also shows us that God never gives up on us, however many wrong turnings we take, that he can take any broken situation and restore his good purposes in it and through it. So let's have a look at that page 16 of the Bible, chapter 16 in the book of Genesis, beginning from the beginning, as it were. So I'll go through it fairly quickly because it's quite a simple story at one level. We read in verse 1 that Sarai, Abraham's wife, has not been able to conceive a child, even after decades of marriage to Abraham. Verse 2, Sarai hatches a cunning plan. She tells her husband to sleep with her slave, her maidservant, so that she can build a family through her. And of course, since Sarai owned her slave, she would also own any children which came from that union. It sounds outrageous to us in our modern-day culture, but can we blame her? She'd probably heard Abraham's complaints that we read of last week that his heir would end up being his manservant rather than a child. Surely this would be one step better. Also, she probably blames herself for not being able to conceive. But her plan is highly speculative. She says, Perhaps I can build a family through her. It's not God's idea. Her motives are all wrong. She wants this for herself. I can build a family. It's for her. It's to make her feel better, not for God. And the trouble with that is that it's not living by faith. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 6, verse 12, the promises of God are inherited through faith and patience, not by taking matters into our own hands. And that's the second thing that's wrong, lack of patience. Their timing is all wrong. They don't wait for God's timing. God wanted to wait until Abraham was, according to the lovely phrase in Hebrews 11, verse 12, as good as dead. Because everyone would know then that if Abraham was so old almost as good as dead, before having offspring as numerous as the stars, that it must have been a miracle of God. But they didn't wait. And so in verse 3, we read that her husband, Abraham, agrees to her suggestion. Now, please realize that actually Abraham wasn't breaking any rules of the culture. Multiple wives and concubines, in other words, female slaves, were normal in large families of that culture. But... Three in a marriage rarely works out. Verse 4, Abraham sleeps with Hagar. But when Hagar falls pregnant, she starts to despise 
her mistress, and the relationships spiral downwards. Verse 5, Sarai now starts to blame Abraham, which is a bit rich when it was her idea in the first place. But Abraham is just as bad, and he washes his hands of Hagar. What gallantry. (laughs) He didn't say, hang on, she's my second wife now. He said, she's your slave, do whatever you want with her. And so in verse 6, Sarai starts to ill-treat Hagar until Hagar cannot take it any more, and she flees. And if you think about it, things must have been really, really bad, because she flees out into the desert. She must have known that she was risking her life by doing that. And what's more, in most ancient cultures, the penalty for a runaway slave was often death in itself. It's a real mess, isn't it? A whole series of bad decisions have led to this family getting totally off track with God's amazing plan for them. God had promised Abraham that his heir would be his own flesh and blood, and after all, Sarai was his chosen wife. But instead of trusting God's authority, they operated on their own authority. And now all the relationships are shattered. Put simply, they've doubted the authority of God's word. Remember Romans 10.17 that came up the other week. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. If you think about it, we have a massive advantage over Abraham. He didn't have the Bible that we have. If we're considering a course of action, we must always ask the question, is it in line with God's word? Because other people may support what you're planning to do, and the law may even support what you're planning to do, but if God cannot bless it, we shouldn't be doing it. And if we do, we may find, like Hagar, that our lives take a big spiral downwards. But you know, it's very often at our lowest points that God meets us most powerfully. And that is exactly what happened with Hagar. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert and asks her, Where have you come from? And where are you going? Isn't God gracious? God knows everything about Hagar. He knows every thought. But he wants her to face up to her own situation. People run away from a lot of things, don't they? Difficult work situations, marriages, churches, responsibilities. How easily do we run away from things which we need to face up to? How easily do we take matters into our own hands rather than trusting God and seeking his wisdom? Where have you come from? Where are you going? The angel of the Lord asks. By the way, does that ring any New Testament bells for you? Someone who comes alongside people at some of their lowest points and asks them questions. What would you like me to do for you? Do you want to get well? Why are you so afraid? Why did you doubt? Who touched me? Do you love me? Ring any bells? It's Jesus, isn't it? And now the angel of the Lord asks, where have you come from? 
Where are you going? And this angel of the Lord figure appears several times in the Old Testament and, and is very mysterious because this is not the angel Gabriel. It's not the archangel Michael or any, if I'm allowed to say it, ordinary angel. You see, this angel of the Lord translated from the angel of Yahweh is, 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 is what it says, actually speaks as if he is Yahweh. The angel says in verse 10, go back to your mistress and submit to her and I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel says, I will do these things. And so it appears that the angel of Yahweh is somehow Yahweh, God. But that cannot be because according to the Bible, no one can see Yahweh and live So we have to say that this character, the angel of the Lord, is Yahweh somehow made visible to people. In other words, distinct from Yahweh, but also Yahweh. And it's similar to some of the encounters which the angel of the Lord has with some of the prophets. Like Isaiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel, who all see a glorious human figure. And in the Gospel of John, we're told that from all eternity to all eternity, Jesus was with God, was God. In other words, distinct from God, but also God. So the angel of the Lord is like Jesus. And remember what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration? Jesus was transformed into a glorious, shining human figure, which was his real identity. So do you see where we're going here? Fascinatingly, this angel of the Lord figure we read of in the Old Testament who is distinct from Yahweh but is also somehow Yahweh disappears the moment Jesus appears in the New Testament. And so I believe that if, if Jesus is part of this eternal trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, then I think that when Hagar met the angel of the Lord, Hagar met with Jesus who asked her some questions. Where have you come from? And where are you going to? Do you know, aren't those two of the greatest questions anyone could ask? (laughs) Do you know the answer to those two questions for your life? Where have you come from? Where are you going to? Because if we could face them and answer them honestly, then like Hagar, God can get our lives back on track if, if, if they're off track in any way. Hagar says, I'm running away. She faces up to it. I'm running away. That's the honest truth. So often we run away from the things we are meant to face up to. And only by facing up to them and being honest with God about them will we get back on track. There's no point pretending. Jesus says in Matthew 5, if you're offering your gift at the altar, in other words, if you're, if you're at worship, and you there remember that your brother or your sister has something against you, don't carry on worshipping. Leave your gift in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother and sister, and then come and offer your gift. Don't pretend. Hagar didn't, and God gets Hagar back on track. The angel of the Lord says, go back to your mistress and submit to her. And he goes on to describe this amazing future that will unfold for her. It's not all easy, but it's an amazing future. And she knows she is hearing nothing but 
pure truth. The angel knows absolutely everything about her. She realizes this is the God who loves her, who cares about her future, who wants to redeem her life so that she can live out her destiny. And so she goes back in obedience to God. She gives birth to a son. She calls him Ishmael in obedience to God. And he goes on to become the father of many nations. Not, by the way, the ancestor of Jesus, who will be born through Sarai's line, but we'll get to that in another week later on. But nonetheless, a father of many nations. As a small aside, you may or may not know that all of the three great monotheistic religions, that's the religions that believe that there is a single creator God of everything, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, all worship the God of Abraham. All of them do. But that this account of Hagar and Sarai is the point of departure between Christianity and Judaism on the one hand and Islam on the other hand. You see, Muslims take their lineage down through the prophet Muhammad to have come from Ishmael, Hagar's son. Whilst Jews and Christians believe that the the kings of Israel, right down through King David and on down to Jesus, are descended from Abraham's second son by Sarai who will be Isaac. And this is the point of departure. And it's very interesting, if not prophetic, that the angel of the Lord tells Hagar here that Ishmael will live with great enmity between him and all his brothers. It seems that although Hagar is restored to Abraham's family, at least for now, there are future consequences as a result of their sin. And that's true of our lives too. When we repent as Hagar did, and turn back to God's path for us, that doesn't mean that everything will be hunky-dory. We may have to live with some of the consequences of our sin for many years into the future. But we do know, what we do know, is that in Jesus we are totally forgiven. We're set free of the guilt, of the shame, and restored back into God's family. As Paul the Apostle wrote, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Some of the most beautiful words ever written. And God is in the business of restoration. After I came to faith, I wrote a letter to that friend of mine, Simon, asking for his forgiveness for trying to fix his relationship with his brother. And that letter broke the deadlock. And we started speaking again. And after more time had gone by and many prayers had been said, he and his brother's relationship was restored as well. Living by true biblical faith isn't easy, but there's no better way to live a life. Firstly, we need to make sure that our motives are pure, all for God's glory and not for ours. We need to be willing to wait for God's timing and not ours. We need to be living in obedience to his word, to God's word. That means believing his word, the Bible, and we can't do that unless we read it. I'm really enjoying the post-alpha course on a Tuesday lunchtime at the moment because we're doing the Bible course, which takes us from the beginning all the way through to the end over about 18 weeks. And uh, 
And it's just, it's so rich um, with, with the stories and the, and the whole, the great story of God's salvation plan. It's wonderful. We, we have to be reading Scripture. But when we do these three things, we will know God's joy, God's peace, and God's power in our lives. Amen.